Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School here at the Australian National University, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I am here, as always, with my pod buddy. Anna Greta Hunter. It's great to be with you, Sharon. I'm Anna Greta. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University. Now, as listeners know, we've been covering quite some ground in our mini-series of Systems Under Strain, where we've had some amazing, insightful conversations so far on the environment, on climate change, biodiversity and resource management. And if you've missed any of these episodes, I, I highly recommend revisiting them. Yeah, Anna Greta, we've had some fantastic conversations so far in this series. And the episode today is going to be another one of those conversations that I think we will take so much from. And of course, this this one is in your area of expertise. So I'm keen to hear from you as well as our guests today. We should just let our listeners know that this episode was recorded on the 4th of August and it's come out a little bit later. So things may change just a, a little bit, but I think the big issues that we're looking at are not going to shift too much over a period of a couple of weeks. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, based at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and is produced by Policy Forum. You can check out the range of degree programs and short courses that we have on offer by visiting crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And Anna Greta, would you like to tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today? As I said, these are a set of issues that are very close to your heart and to your area of expertise. Well, Sharon, we've been talking over the last couple of weeks about systems under strain, uh, and I think it flows well on the conversations we've had, in fact, in the last couple of years of looking at the really wicked policy challenges that we face in Australia and in the region on complex problems like climate change and management of our natural environment. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the healthcare sector. Australia has one of the world's best healthcare systems with advanced diagnostic services and treatments, exceptional facilities, and importantly, and centrally, devoted, caring, and excellent practitioners who value care every day that they're working. However, our healthcare system has been under strain for quite some time. It's a system that's underfunded, under-resourced, understaffed, and sometimes undervalued. Some parts of our health system are clearly now in crisis. 
Many of us take comfort in knowing that medical experts at our local hospitals are there for us day and night should an emergency arise, and that we can see our GP when we need to. Yet there are many stories over the last few years that reflect the system stresses, with many of us seeking care, experiencing long wait times in emergency departments, and delays in access to primary care and appropriate investigations. The pandemic's only highlighted the strain that the system's been under, and now, as on the 4th of August when we're recording this episode, Australia has recorded over 11,000 deaths and is quickly approaching more than 10 million cases of coronavirus-19. The hospital system is simply not coping. So how can we reform such an integral part of our society without compromising on patients' care? Will we learn the hard lessons that we should be learning from the pandemic in time? Joining us today, we have two incredible leaders from the health space, Dr. Leslie Russell and Dr. Claire Skinner. Leslie, can we start with you? Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes, I'm Dr. Leslie Russell. I'm an adjunct associate professor at the Menzies Centre for Health Policy and Economics at the University of Sydney. Um, I started out my working life as a research scientist at the lab bench working in infectious diseases, but I quickly moved across into politics. And for most of my life, I've worked as a policy advisor to the Democratic Party in the US Congress and to the Labor Party in the Australian Parliament. Um, When I'm asked about with what are my particular issues and, and what am I most interested in, I tell people that I rampage through the whole portfolio. And we have always enjoyed watching you rampage and learning from you along those lines. Claire, you and I, of course, have been talking about politics and healthcare for a long time, particularly since we were medical students at Sydney University in the 1990s. But for the pod who don't know you, would you mind introducing yourself to us? Yes, so I'm Dr Claire Skinner. I'm an emergency physician practising in suburban Sydney these days, but I've had a long and winding path through medicine. Um, I should also mention that I'm the current president of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, which continues to take me by surprise. Um, I actually, after school, went to the ANU and did combined degrees in arts and science. I'm genuinely interested in everything. I ended up doing honours in history and looked at the um, the um, the history of narcotic use in Australia for my honours project. So that was a very health-related topic. I then decided to try and train as a journalist, but I didn't find that was me. And then I went back to university and did medicine. I love most things. I love people. I love systems. I love clinical work. And I didn't, it took me a while to work it out, but I think emergency medicine probably was the ultimate way to combine my interest in seeing patients being involved in politics and trying to advocate for system reform. Claire and Leslie, welcome to both of you. It it is fantastic to have you with us today. Um, Claire, I wanted to start with you. You know, as as you've mapped out, you're um, an emergency department physician and, and you've got incredible experience. And I wonder if we could start this discussion by painting us a picture of what life was like in Australian emergency departments and how that's changed over the past few years. You know, I think for many of us, it's almost impossible to imagine what the world was like before COVID-19 because it has changed the world so dramatically. But I wonder if we could begin by thinking pre-pandemic and if you could just talk us through what state our hospitals were in then and what were the major challenges that you and your colleagues were experiencing before the pandemic hit? Thanks, Sharon. So, look, 
I'm just acknowledging emergency medicine is older than me. I've been around Australian hospitals and emergency departments since the late 90s. Emergency medicine is a relatively modern specialty, um, sort of evolved in the 1950s in the USA. It became a specialty in Australia in the mid-1980s. And look, my memory of emergency departments early, and I guess as a child, was that they, you really only went there for a really extreme thing. So I remember going there. My sister was run over by a car. She was taken to ED by an ambulance, I think. Another sister had a really nasty laceration on, his, on her head. The GP came out, um, couldn't stitch it up at home, so it was um, sent to ED. So I remember it not being somewhere you went as your first port of call, but somewhere that you went, you know, almost when there was nowhere else, you know, everyone attempted to solve their problems in other ways. When I went to Canberra Hospital as an intern, which was in 2002, ED was a bit of a mixed bag. And look, just pointing out that the current problems we're experiencing, and we call that access block in ED land, but that really means the situation where patients who are all worked up in ED and need admission to a hospital bed can't get to one in time. That was happening every now and then. But in the vast majority of cases, we were doing much more procedural work than I remember now. So it was a mix of car accidents, heart attacks, strokes, um, we'd do lots of procedural work. So I remember we'd reduce fractures and we'd put in chest drains. It was a much more procedural specialty than I remember now. I remember the odd day when we were overcrowded we went up to what was called ambulance bypass then, but that was a few times in a season, like winters were bad. And now those conditions that I remember from then, actually, they would actually be good for any day. So we've been on a trajectory of rising presentations, rising complexity, increased overcrowding and increasing difficulty getting patients through to the award they need and the team they need for a very long time now. The first academic reference in the literature to access block occurred in 1998 in Australia, so that's a long time ago. And look, the conditions I'm currently working in are definitely the most difficult I've faced in my career. The patients have really changed. The degree of complexity is right up there. Patients are very elderly. There's a lot more mental health problems presenting to the emergency department. Um, and look, I think the thing that with COVID is it's really easy to think that COVID has caused this, but in fact, we were on this trajectory for 20 years before COVID hit. And I'd hate to think that we get distracted and think COVID's the main game in town right now, because in fact, this trajectory is unsustainable. And I think it probably reflects a failure of community and primary care to keep up with the changing demands on the health system. Claire, that's a, a beautiful job that you've just done of sort of highlighting and mapping out what some of the, the challenges are that you face when you're at the coalface, if you like, of, a, of an emergency department. Leslie, I wonder if we could turn to you now and to do perhaps some policy and some systems, ma systems mapping. Um, can you help us to, to understand the health system broadly, but where emergency care fits into to Australia's health system. Um, you know, Claire made the point that we've been on a 20-year trajectory of real challenges and that while COVID presents its own unique challenges, it's not just COVID that's shaping the, the, the context of the health system. Can you just talk us through those issues? And, and, and let me start by saying that I totally agree with Claire and her analysis of, of the situation and how it has developed. And, um, I think the simplest way of, of, of saying this is that the, the problem is that we do not have a healthcare system in Australia. We have a series of healthcare systems and they've all been looked at as silos. So hospitals 
and the issues around hospitals have always been dealt with as a hospital issue where, yes, there's some federal funding, but basically that's the state's problem over there. And issues about community-based care, general, primarily general practice, is funded by Medicare, and that's the Fed's problem over there. And and then there are the other things that sort of hang off that, like aged care, rehabilitative care. Um, mental health is always seen as something, or, or until very recently has been seen as something very different than the rest of the healthcare system. And substance abuse is even further out. It's like the planet Pluto. Um, and And so... Everyone's managing these silos when, in fact, they are all interconnected. And Claire made the point that she thinks, and and I agree with her, that a lot of what is putting additional pressure on hospitals and emergency departments is that our primary care, our general practice system, because it isn't really a primary care system, that's something we should be aiming for, is pretty good at treating, you know, the isolated incident, but it doesn't really help patients with chronic and complex conditions manage those conditions, and so they end up in hospital when that could arguably have been foreseen as a problem and prevented. Leslie, I'm wondering whether those problems that you outlined so beautifully are problems that are fundamentally associated with our federal system of government and the division between the, the, the Commonwealth government and the states, or whether it's more about the way in which in policy broadly we tend to silo things and not talk across those silos, or is it perhaps a combination of both? Uh, look, it's a combination of both those things and a whole lot of others as well. Um, I, I think, and, and the other factor we have to mention, particularly when it comes to hospitals, is is the the public-private dichotomy that has never been resolved since Medicare was first introduced, and that public-private split has has important implications for health workforce and for patient access. So, um, Leslie, it's interesting that you mentioned the private-public divide because I think that's something we don't talk about enough. I think in Australian health policy we're really idealistic um, and we have lots of really well-intended clinical redesign projects and we like to go looking for the bottlenecks. And what we've unfortunately ended up doing often when we address a bottleneck is trying to pick the easiest one and moving the true bottleneck to an even harder place. But I think we fail to think about how the money moves and you can do everything you want, but until you think about how the money moves, you can't actually solve a problem, and we've been too idealistic about that. I, I'm really worried about the lack of equity in the health system, and I think what we've seen is, like, actually, in emergency departments, we see that inequity play out every day. We hate talking about rationing in the Australian healthcare system, but, in fact, we do ration. In the private system, we ration by money or cost, and in the public system, we ration by queuing. And neither of them are right and they're not explicit. And I think until we start being actually more open and honest with ourselves and the Australian public about how the money moves and how that creates the system, we won't actually affect any real redesign. Yes, and, and I would add to that, you, you know, one of the threats that's 
routinely made over decades about what will happen to the Australian healthcare system is that it will become Americanized. Well, I have to say I think the Australian healthcare system looks an awful lot like that in the United States at the moment where postcode is talks is a good indication of your health outcomes access is governed as much by if not more so by money than by need and the so-called universality of medicare has been allowed to erode such that Far too many Australians go without needed care until they're desperately ill and they end up in the emergency department waiting to get a bed in a hospital. Leslie, I'm also worried that we over-service the wealthy and the metropolitan and we under-service other people and we never talk about that. So, so much of our resource in healthcare goes to over-servicing the worried well to some extent And I think about things like needing a precise diagnosis for support at school and there's all this stuff that all this resource that goes particularly in the mental health space into like sort of the easy bits or the procedural bits. Yes. And that means that people with the really hard problems and difficult social circumstances can actually access no care at all. Yes. I mean, what we're talking about is the need for reform and and what we've seen, especially over the last couple of decades, is that with one or two minor exceptions, there's been no bravery, no willingness to tackle the the really wicked problems, the hard reform problems, and people have tinkered at the margins and that has tended to just simply create problems elsewhere in the system. So what we're listening to here is a, a tremendous amount of overlap between the money in the system, the people in the system, and the sorts of drivers for health, uh, adverse health outcome that we've certainly explored a number of times on this podcast. Uh, listeners will be aware that the social determinants of health really do warrant more attention. And and I think, Claire, you've just made a superb point of how to how our system really doesn't allow us to prioritise according to need, uh, particularly when we're considering the social determinants of health like geographic location and socioeconomic. But let's be a little bit specific here about health funding and and this idea of following the money. Leslie, who funds what parts of our health system? Well, let's start with hospitals. The hospitals are funded jointly by the federal government and the state and territory governments. Uh, It's been a long time since the federal contribution was anywhere close to 50%. It's around about, depends whose numbers you use, it's between 43 and 47%. There have been some changes in the way hospitals are funded and that's been some improvement, but obviously more needs to be done based on the activities. Uh, Medicare is a a federal responsibility that is uh, uncapped and so uh, funded on an as-needs basis. But interestingly, uh, there's a very substantial uh, federal contribution to the use of private healthcare in private hospitals through the uh, private health insurance rebate, which these days, again, depending on exactly how you count it, is at least $7 billion a year and maybe as high as $11 billion a year. In addition to that, Medicare pays generally about 75% of the costs of, of 75% rebate for services delivered in a private hospital. On the other issues like uh, psychology, physiotherapy, 
dental, the other allied health services. If you don't have private health insurance, which is barely an insurance, it's really a capped amount that's paid out each year, um, then you pay out of pocket. And so I think about 60 to 70% of those sorts of, uh, uh, we'll call them allied health services, are paid for by patients out of pocket. So patients pay a very substantial amount out of pocket over and above what they pay as part of their Medicare levy. So three big buckets of the federal government, the state governments, and of course, consumers. Yes, with private health insurance on the side there. Yes. And I I guess the private insurance companies are funders, although they're also recipients of funds. um, And I guess they're paid to to provide the services and they tend to be, um, some of them are not for profit, but some of them are driven by profit as a motive. Yes. Um, Claire, during the pandemic, there was this completely new narrative that really emerged as people were witnessing healthcare workers on the front line. We saw waves of appreciation and gratitude exuding from media and politicians sang their praises. People were literally singing in the streets. Claire, you have written some pieces that are highlighting the concerns, though, about our health system, how our health system is functioning at the moment. And and I think the pandemic has really highlighted these existing holes in that system. We're going to talk solutions after our break, but just before we take a break, I wonder if you might like to comment on where and how our system is currently straining or broken. Um, Thanks, Anna Greta. So... It was really nice in the early pandemic to see a lot of support for healthcare workers. And I will acknowledge that healthcare workers have had an increased platform during the pandemic. So many health leaders, including me, had direct communications with the public to a level never before and a lot of trust and involvement with the media. And that's been good. I think in the early pandemic, everyone was very aware of the pressures on healthcare workers and it was pretty common for me to turn up to work and find care packages and cakes and it was lovely. And increasingly through the pandemic, we've actually seen the opposite happen, which is there's a degree of pandemic fatigue and I think the general public are now actually quite angry when they come and interact with services. So the rates of aggression and violence that we're experiencing in emergency departments is really high at the moment. I think part of the problem has been that... um, Through the pandemic, it's been difficult to run other services. And look, I'll fully acknowledge how difficult it would be to run a private business during the pandemic with, you know, expectations on PPE, extra steps, extra staffing. But what we've seen increasingly over the last two to three decades is a concentration of risk in the emergency department. And with the rise of modern managerialism, which some of which has been good because we needed more accountability and more planning, but with the rise of that, we've become more and more risk-averse. So we've tended to be worried about risk and we've tended to sort of jump at shadows, I guess, when it comes to clinical risk in particular. So the temptation when something goes wrong in a hospital, and unfortunately things do go wrong, is to add more and more steps. So we've seen healthcare work get more complex. We've seen risk concentrated in the emergency department with go to ED becoming the last, you know, the the final step of most health algorithms. So if you you ring, you know, a practitioner and, and get their answering machine, it will tend to say, and if you're worried, go to ED at the end. And look, the general public, when they come to ED, they meet something they weren't expecting, which is long waits, relatively junior practitioners, really complicated processes, and they get quite angry because they weren't expecting that. They've been told by everybody, if you're worried, go to ED. And I think part of the problem is we need to be honest with people about the fact that our health system can't do everything 
because at the moment expectations of consumers and the service we can actually provide them are totally at odds with each other and that's making healthcare a very difficult working environment. Claire, that's a really sobering picture to paint and certainly one that resonates with my experience as a healthcare practitioner through the last few years. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back, everyone. We are here speaking with Leslie Russell and Claire Skinner, and we're taking the temperature, if you like, of the Australian healthcare system and hearing about how it's currently struggling, but how some of those challenges have been around for quite a long time. As we've heard about the extraordinary challenges facing our healthcare system, we now want to start to talk a little bit about some ideas for change. Claire, can I start with you by by kind of asking about some of the complexities in the healthcare system? And we've heard some of that about the many moving parts of hospitals, providers, the state and federal governments, the role of private insurers, of consumers. Now, we have got a very, very complex system here. Could changes and reform to emergency medical care specifically make a difference? And where do you think we should start in making those changes? So the problems you see in emergency departments, and I guess the most visible manifestation of that is videos of ambulances queuing often around the block, um, which we've seen a lot of on the telly recently. Mostly they don't actually come from emergency departments. The reason you see them in ED is because we're the only part of the system that's open 24 hours a day and has no wrong door. So I just want to reassure you that, you know, emergency departments are doing it really tough, but actually that is a manifestation of a whole of system problem, not just an ED problem. There are things we can do in EDs to tidy up the way we work, and those things are mostly around the way our workforce works, some of our digital tools and some of our processes. But mostly EDs have done a lot of redesign work over the last 10 to 15 years as, as, as the pressure has built up. I think instead what we need to do is actually work on the whole system Um, Leslie spoke in the first half about the various funding pots, and I think that's a very big problem, which it's very easy at the moment to not have accountability for a patient journey. The patient journey is split over several funding pots and several different providers. I think we need to work out how to bring that together, so have some sort of shared governance and financing model so that a single patient journey is, is all run and accounted for by the same group. It's tricky to know how to do that. So I used to think we should do that nationally, and I hark back to the National Health and Hospitals Reform Commission during the Rudd era, which proposed three ideas for how to do that. But look, through the COVID pandemic, I've actually worked out, and and also through my current role with the college, that each jurisdiction actually has unique challenges and pressures. 
So I actually think now you probably need to have some bipartite agreements between the states and the Commonwealth. So at least each state and territory in the Commonwealth is working from a shared pot of funding and with similar rules. Um, so I think that's the first thing we have to solve. I think the next thing we have to solve is actually getting the, the general public need to understand what we can and can't do in health. And we need to actually involve people more in decision-making. So as we become more and more risk-averse, we've tended to assume that everybody will want a long life and that everybody will want everything. And look, even in our own family and friend groups, we know that's not the case. So we need to get better at talking about that in a way which involves consumers and carers much more in the conversation so they can actually shape the values and the priorities for our health system. Mm, they're two really amazing starting points, uh, the shared pot of money and trying to, to deal with the financial disconnection between on a patient's journey and these conversations around patient-centred care and really involving patients in decisions about the sorts of treatment and tests that they'd like to have and what the goal of that might be. Leslie, one of Mark Butler's first steps as health minister has been to, uh, to address the st struggling healthcare system has been the formation of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force. It's focused on addressing what is described as the powerless state of primary care. How important is primary care in our health system and is this task force focused in the right direction? Primary care is very important and, and I always make a very clear distinction between general practice and primary care, and primary care and primary health care. Um, and I think we're aiming towards primary care, and it would be really nice if we could get to primary health care with a much more inclusive focus on, on the social issues. Um, I think Mark Butler has made a particularly good start here. I think uh, there's uh, you can always quibble about who gets to sit on these sorts of advisory groups, but I think it's pretty a pretty reasonable selection of people. And I really like the five focus points that he has uh, put forward. Uh, it's worthwhile noting that number one is about workforce, and I would say it doesn't matter whether we're talking about primary care or we're talking about hospitals or we're talking about EDs or we're talking about aged care, Workforce, no, nothing can be improved unless we do more about workforce. That doesn't just mean more numbers. That means everyone working to full scope of practice. No arguments about that, please. Um, and, and it also means teamwork. And that will also help with the patient, the keeping the integration of the patient journey that we've talked about. So, and, and he's got a number of other, he talks specifically about uh, the, the, the ongoing needs of patients who, with chronic and complex conditions. They might spend time in hospital that's unnecessary, but they get virtually all of their care in the community, often delivered by people within their home whose healthcare status is arguably not much better than that of the patient. Um, and, and I really loved the fact that one of the points of focus was on addressing inequalities. Um, we haven't heard anyone talk about that in the context of healthcare, anyone in government talk about that in the context of healthcare for a long time. But we need to be able to walk and chew gum here. We can't just say, oh, well, we're tackling primary care, we don't have to do anything else. And, and yes, um, the states will all be lining up at Mark Butler's door looking for more money. And, and in some cases it's going to be about, it is going to be about more money. In other cases it's going to be about spending money differently. 
So, for example, under the in the Rudd government days, there was money for subacute care and rehabilitative and palliative care. All of that money has now gone, and yet those step down conditions from very acute care provided in hospitals are really needed, and that's part of what causes bed block. Uh, so I think we need to be innovative in the ways that we think about that. And and I would add, as uh, and we can go on and talk some more about this, but I would add that I don't think it's a one-size-fits. There are no one-size-fits-all solutions, and we we're going to need to do something different to those hospitals in regional and rural areas uh, that manage a totally different sort of portfolio of patients than what happens um, for the, the hospitals that get all the public attention in Melbourne and Sydney and Queens, uh, Brisbane and Adelaide. Claire, Leslie makes some superb points here about the complexity of the system and that, that perhaps this strengthening Medicare task force is a good place to start, but it's by no means the only thing needed. What are your thoughts about using that as a starting point for health system reform? Look, I'm encouraged to see it as a starting point as well. Um, primary care is the core of the Australian healthcare system. In emergency departments, there's a bit of a myth that EDs are busy because people come today who might have seen their GP today. That's not usually the case. There's a little bit of crossover between general practice and ED on a day-to-day basis, but it's actually not that significant. A far bigger problem is the people who come to ED today who need hospital admission today because they haven't had access to coordinated primary care over years. So their chronic conditions have presented themselves and deteriorated to the point where they need hospital-based care. I really agree with Leslie that workforce is where it's at. So there is no healthcare system without health workforce. And in Australia, we need to make sure we have the right people with the right skills in the right place and at the right time. And that's particularly so in rural and regional and remote areas and increasingly in outer metropolitan areas. So we need to focus on how to make that attractive. I think we have a problem in health in that it takes too long for people to train in things and it's too inflexible once you're there. So for me, a big focus would be on making sure that everyone is working at top of scope, but that they also have the support staff they need around them so they can do that. So, for example, when I'm at work, I often make beds and empty bins and restock trolleys because there's no one else to do it. And I'm not above doing that, you know, emotionally or cognitively, but it just doesn't make sense when I'm the person that's also the senior decision maker in charge of the department. So we need to actually work on some of that stuff along the whole spectrum of workforce with skills. We particularly need to focus on how we supply the right skills to regional and remote areas. But I think we also need to work out how we can move between things and do other things. So particularly in nursing, and I acknowledge I'm not a nurse and I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I I notice a lot of nurses who um, you know, get, get to the end of something they've been doing for a long time, don't want to do shift work anymore, sort of get a bit burnt out in their particular um, area of practice, but then it becomes really difficult to go anywhere else. And in medicine, of course, you've got 10 years sunk cost into getting a specialty and it becomes very, very difficult to start anywhere else in the system. So people tend to leave or tend to remove themselves from clinical work, which means we have an enormous amount of wastage from our health system. So I think that should be a really big focus. I think we also, from a workforce perspective, need to look at rosters and sustainability of careers. So this has been a good feature of the pandemic, which is we've always run our rosters paper thin in acute healthcare. And when you can't go to to work because you've got a cold, which is the case currently, 
you can't do that. We, the, the healthcare rosters have always relied on presenteeism, which is everyone goes to work at all costs. And we can't do that anymore. So I think we need to now focus on how we make rosters more sustainable to ensure that our healthcare workforce don't get exhausted and leave. Claire, I think both you and Leslie have have mapped out beautifully some of the, the issues and challenges, particularly around workforce and the importance of, of rethinking and thinking seriously about those workforce issues. And I think many of us would have been particularly to emergency departments and would have seen the exhaustion etched on the faces of the the, the, the medical practitioners. And of course, that was well before COVID that you could see those visible signs of people being absolutely exhausted as they, they go about the incredible work that they're doing. But I did want to ask you both a little more about funding, and we've we've talked a little bit about this. Medicare is the primary source of federal health funding. I'm keen to hear from both of you. Is the Medicare model still fit for purpose? Um, and are there changes to the federal-state funding relationship that might help here? And I'd also be be interested in hearing your thoughts on the role of the the health insurers in all of this and and whether something as critical as healthcare should be based on a for-profit model um, amongst health insurers. So there's a lot there that that I'd love to hear your reflections. Um, Leslie, perhaps we could begin with you. Right. Well, um, it's an interesting question. Is is Medicare fit for purpose? Um, to some extent, one could argue that the ongoing uh, Medicare MBS review task force has been looking at that, and they certainly came back in their their report that was released in 2020 and said that fee-for-service was not fit for purpose, um, which is not quite the same thing. One of the one of the issues is that um, the, they've really struggled to update the Medicare benefit schedule, and every time they've made recommendations, these have been fought by the stakeholders involved. Uh, so we need to do a better job of modernising Medicare and doing it quickly in looking at that work that people like Professor Adam Elshaw do, does around um, high-value, low-value care, um, rewarding um these days, technical procedures, surgical procedures are rewarded much more than um, those that require just sitting and talking to a patient, and, and something needs to be done to address that. So, and, and a lot of the dissatisfaction that you're seeing, particularly in GP land at the moment, goes to um, the inadequacy of, of the Medicare rebate as, as far as the doctors are concerned. And that's what's led to a lot of out-of-pocket costs. Um, and, of course, that's even worse when it comes to specialists. I suspect that there are actually quite a lot of uh, particularly younger doctors out there who would be pretty happy to work for a wage um, if, if all sorts of other things were taken care of. So um, I certainly don't think the – I see how – the paucity of fee-for-service when it comes to managing people who have multiple problems who need to see a GP and perhaps a, a, a dietitian and a specialist uh, multiple times. Some people use the healthcare system a lot and, and fee-for-service is problematic for them 
in terms of their being able to afford it, and and it's really problematic in terms of how their care is coordinated. That's a real, you know, I'm un, in no doubt about what a difficult problem that is to resolve. There are some things that you can do in between times that sort of you don't have to go from A to Z in one big step. There are things that you can do as an interim. One of the things that I think is gaining some popularity and I've got my fingers crossed that Mark Butler might try and do something in conjunction with the states and territories on this is is to make specialist clinics available without too much in the way of -of out-of-pocket costs because we know that many patients, particularly those outside of metropolitan areas, really struggle to get timely timely and affordable access to specialist care. Um, One of the other things that happens is I think if we did transfers of care better, if if we saw transfers of care, whether it's from um, an aged care facility to a hospital and back to the aged care facility or from uh, the community to a hospital to a rehabilitative service and then back to the community, if we did those things better, we'd have a better chance of coordinating care and and it it shouldn't just be seen as a last-minute thing that the most junior member of the hospital team types up in the five minutes before the patient goes home. Thanks, Leslie. And Claire, would love to hear your thoughts on, on those sets of issues. Look, I echo what Leslie has said, that I don't believe it's Medicare per se that's no longer fit for purpose. Although, look, just pointing out that Medicare was implemented in the 1980s in an era where if you had a a heart attack, chances were you died in your 40s, whereas now we would do a life-saving procedure and you'd probably live to old age. So the burden of healthcare has really changed in that time. I think, as Leslie said, fee-for-service is actually the problem. So fee-for-service for individual single providers, for individual incidents, is not what we need now. We actually need multidisciplinary longitudinal care and Medicare as fee-for-service doesn't drive that. Leslie's outlined really well how fee-for-service drives you know, it has moral hazards in community-based care, but it also drives the way practitioners behave in hospital to some extent. So um, we've described earlier that often when you come to hospital, you know, inside the hospital you have very junior doctors. So you have, a, you know, someone who's in their first, second, third year out of university working with someone who's in their third, fourth, fifth year out of university. And the consultant or the person with a, with a specialist qualification only visits intermittently. And that specialist is paid fee-for-service usually for attending the hospital, which means they come in quickly. They're only paid to see a patient who's in under their own bed card. And, of course, you want people to work together. We actually need to come up with ways for people to be paid to work together with other specialists. And that's something we don't do very well. And then if you broaden that out to the entire allied health and nursing team, we really don't do it well. So not only is fee-for-service driving some moral, you know, it has a little bit of moral hazard in the community. And I don't think anyone's trying to behave badly about it. I just think that they're making the best of a, you know, a dysfunctional model. But it also drives some inefficiencies in patient patient flow um, within the hospital system, which can compound the whole problem. For things to work, we actually need good capacity, good flow, good integration and clearly defined populations for any clinical redesign effort. So you need to make sure you do get this money and the teamwork right. I think the other thing around fee-for-service is it puts the administrative burden for making money onto the individual practitioner, which means that people can spend some time clinically caring for the patient, but there's also a lot of paperwork to do, and that seems a little bit wrong. 
That happens as well with activity-based funding, which I guess is the other big pillar of hospital funding. So activity-based funding came in with good intentions. It was meant to mean that people only got paid for what they did, so that would you know, encourage them to do what they did more efficiently and more effectively. But it has imposed a massive administrative burden on hospitals and increasingly people aren't coming in with well-defined things. So we actually end up with the true burden of work being done in health services not reflected in the funding models for two reasons. And Greta, could I ask you to perhaps jump across the mic um, so I can ask you a question about um, some of these issues, these issues of fee-for-service, of course, the things that you face daily in your professional life. And Leslie also mentioned those challenges of low-value care, and I know that that's something that you have worked a lot around and have some thoughts on. Can I ask you to, to jump to the role of panellists for a moment and share your thoughts on these issues with us? Absolutely. So Claire's describing me. I'm one of those consultants who will go in and see the patients that are admitted under my care and then leave again. Um, and and this the funding model that perpetuates, uh, I think, inefficiencies in terms of the hospital really do need attention. But it also is part of the issue, I think, in the in the um, outpatient environment or in specialty practice, both in the hospital environment and in private practice. So at both activity-based funding and the fee-for-service model uh, are where the healthcare practitioner, and we're talking dominantly about doctors are being paid for the things that they do to people. And perhaps if I can be, be a little bit more extreme in my role as a cardiologist, um, I would be much better remunerated for doing invasive things to patients, so sending them off to have an angiogram. And if I'm doing angiograms or putting stents into patients, I get paid significantly more for doing procedural work to patients than I do for having the conversations around those procedures. Um, and I think Leslie's already highlighted this discrepancy in our health system between remuneration for conversation and remuneration for procedures and procedural work. And of course, we do procedural work for very good reasons. There are some extraordinary life-saving uh, procedures that take place. And Claire mentioned one of them, that the outcome now for heart attacks has changed significantly in the last 30 years, as we see survival really improving because of the extraordinary work that we do in the hospital environment with acute, uh, acutely unwell patients. But there is within our healthcare system much more waste than we probably are prepared to acknowledge on a regular basis. And, and I'm reflecting on the work that's done by an organisation by choosing, called Choosing Wisely that looks at both low-value and no-value healthcare. And so low-value healthcare, which Leslie has alluded to, is healthcare that's provided to people that doesn't make much difference to either quality of life or life expectancy. You can have a procedure or a test or a medication done and it may not do any harm, but it may actually not give you any meaningful benefit in terms of your quality of life or your life expectancy. And, and the estimates are that that is about 30% of the work that's done in the hospital system uh, in its current form. There's around 10% of what takes place uh, in, in healthcare, which is no-value healthcare, which actually does potentially more harm than providing benefit. And we know where some of these areas are. It's, it's messy. It's messy clinically, and it often needs to, to come back to quite focused clinical discussions with patients. Um, and it gets me thinking quite significantly, and part of the reason I'm interested in low-value, no-value healthcare is because, of course, all of the things that we do to people carry some degree of carbon footprint, and I'm thinking about healthcare sustainability. But I'm also very much focused on the quality of life that we can offer patients and their life expectancy advantages as well. And so I think we need some 
deep transformative thinking and Leslie and Claire have already given us some frameworks for that multidisciplinary teams that work together cooperatively uh, using our allied health colleagues particularly clinical nurse consultants thinking about how to work with uh, social workers and physiotherapists exercise physiologists And of course, there's a model for this in the Australian landscape already, which is the Aboriginal Controlled Health Organisation or the NACHO uh, model, which really provides integrative care, which is about supporting the health and well-being of community. And and I think these sorts of models require much more detailed exploration, taking away the paying of, of doctors to do things to people and thinking very, very deliberately about how the health system supports health and well-being for, for individuals and for their community. I think we have some wonderful thinking here today about how we can take very different approaches, how we can use new models um, and address some of the challenges that we are facing. This is a conversation that could go on for much longer, and I'm sure we'll pick up on these issues again in the future. But we will need to draw this conversation to a close. And I wonder if we could do so by asking each of you, Leslie and Claire, for what is the number one piece of advice that you would give to the the health minister or the Minister for Health and Aged Care, Mark Butler? Um, And you may well have already given this piece of advice, but, (laughs) but could you share with us what that number one piece of advice would be as we start or as we move towards what needs to be a process of transformation. Uh, Leslie, perhaps we could begin with you. I think I would say absolutely minimal numbers of advisory groups, committees, inquiries. Read all the old reports, mine the archives, look at what we've learnt and don't be afraid of action. Learning from history and acting for the future is wonderful advice, I think, Leslie. And Claire, what would your one piece of advice be? Following on from Leslie, I think the ideal model already exists and, and Anna Greta's described it around Archo models. I, there's a fairly, when I talk to people who are interested in health policy, most of us describe a fairly similar thing for the Australian healthcare system. It's really well integrated, multidisciplinary, primary care, um, it's good digital um, connection, so we, we need better digital tools to give patients more control and access to their own information. We probably need to accept that the hospital will look very different to how it looks now, so it probably becomes an emergency department, probably quite a big emergency department, operating theatres, ICUs and rehab facilities and a labour floor. A whole bunch of care will be provided at home. Some of that will be through carers who travel. Some of it will be digitally enabled through telehealth. And all of that will be, you know, in, in our in our world, um, urban design and metropolitan, you know, anyway, the environment that we live in will be designed in a way where the healthy choices are the easiest choices. So people will exercise, they'll eat well because all of that is promoted. We'll have good income support. We'll have people getting education so they can look after themselves better and have better outcomes for themselves and their families through their life. I think we can all articulate this. It's a fairly well-articulated shared vision. The challenge is how to get from here to there. And I think that, you know, that you can only do that, you know, how do you do that? There's money, there's laws, but overwhelmingly there's leadership and culture. And I think we need to get that leadership engaged. So you've got to actually commit to doing it and you need to bring on the right leaders from each of the professions and various interest groups to do that because the temptation with change is to get frightened and decide it's too hard. And each interest group potentially, if they're not engaged, probably will dig in their heels. So I think we actually have the vision. When I talk to people, we have this vision. 
we have some of the tools, but there's some of them are in their infancy. The challenge is now how to use the leadership and give people the agency to get from where we are now to that vision that many of us share. Leslie Russell and Claire Skinner, it has been the most extraordinary conversation on the health system, the challenges and the opportunity. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you, Anna Greta and Sharon. And thank you. I enjoyed it. Anna Greta, I thought that was a a terrific conversation with Claire and Leslie. And certainly for someone who doesn't work on health policy, there was so much that that I learned through that conversation. And I must say this issue around fee-for-service, you know, as a consumer of healthcare, I find really interesting and really significant. And I think Many of us, while we we recognise just how committed and how hardworking many members of the medical profession are, have also experienced those moments when we really feel as though we're just part of a machine that is about profit, that is about salary levels, and we don't necessarily feel particularly cared for. We don't feel that valuing care is central to what's happening. Um, And so that conversation about how we can shift some of that, I found really powerful. But Anna Greta, I wanted to, to sneak in a question to you and put to you the question that we always ask to our guests. You know, you have been in this space for a long time. You've done deep thinking about it. What is the one piece of advice that you would give to our Minister for Health and Aged Care? Well, Sharon, thank you for asking me the question, and you know the answer, I think. Um, and in fact, you've just framed the answer, and the frame, the conversation that we've had today with Claire Skinner and Leslie Russell has really helped us to see, I think, some of the remarkable tensions that exist within a really complex um, and often poorly integrated health service across the Australian landscape. I think, I think healthcare in Australia needs to decide whether it is a profit-focused business. And if the business model is where we are going, then we should declare that and we should make that much more transparent to the consumer groups that are engaging with healthcare services um, and, and really begin to bring that much more explicitly into the discussion. Or we decide that healthcare is about caring. And, and that's certainly where I sit. I think healthcare should be around caring, in which case we do. We put our hashtag value care at the centre of all of the decision making we make in healthcare. We provide a health system that from the ground up across communities, across geography, is centred on the patient's quality of life, on their life expectancy, that values caring for people, that values caring for place and values caring in, within communities. And, and I think if we if we clearly articulate that as the driving motivation behind all of the decision-making that we, we make, all of the complex decisions that we're facing in the healthcare environment, that, that having that as a driving theme really helps significantly. That will be my favourite piece of advice. Anna Greta, I think that is such a powerful piece of advice to, to take away from this. And I, I would just add to that, we make something like healthcare a commodity for profit at our peril. It will not serve us well if that's the path we go down. And so we need to have that conversation explicitly. We really do need to have that conversation explicitly. We need to feel happy or at least comfortable in having that conversation explicitly as a community. Um, and I think if we can acknowledge it and, and, and debate it and come to what we hope is the right decision, um, that that would be the best way forward. And we might continue to try to contribute to and indeed lead some of those conversations right here on the pod. 
This podcast is produced by policyforum.net. We'll leave a link to some of the publications that are relevant to the conversation that we've had today. Um, Both Claire and Leslie have published extensively on these issues, so you'll find them in our show notes. We love to hear from you, our listeners, so please do reach out to us on Twitter or send us an email or join us on Facebook. We will be back again next week to continue to talk through some of the systems that are under incredible strain at the moment, but how we can move forward and to explore some of the solutions that are available to us. So join us again then. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.